Well, <clears throat> uh, the Slido app is working again. If, if you want to, as these men are talking, if you want to uh, uh, address them with questions, please, please uh, feel free to do so. Uh, let me just uh, to answer a couple of questions that were, were brought up in the uh, previous hours. Um, one of the questions was wishing that there were biologists uh, who were able to speak at this conference. And I agree, one of the dilemmas we have uh, in this topic is that it is so big and broad and interdisciplinary. As a result, uh, what the Bush Center has done is that we have conferences that focus on, uh, sometimes we have where we have, an, you know, different ones from different disciplines, uh, but this is a history and philosophy conference in which we are dealing with the question uh, of this issue. From, and, and we have historians and philosophers who are the speakers. Let me encourage you, if you want to hear biologists talk about this topic, next Tuesday. Tuesday, we will have uh, uh, Daryl Falk and Todd Wood. Both are biologists, and they're going to talk about evolution and creation uh, from a scientific perspective. Uh, and let's face it, we're a bunch of old white guys up here. Let's, let, you know, that, is, uh, that is true, uh, and, and I think we should hear from a variety of voices. Let me just say, uh, our video is online where we had uh, Jennifer Wiseman uh, here with us just a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, I, to both of those questions, I feel uh, the, the, the weight of those questions, and I appreciate them, and, and we're just addressing them the best we can at this time. Well, I'm going to ask uh, each of our uh, panelists if they would just kind of give a brief word to start us with, just giving us their observations of perhaps about the conference, or perhaps what they have heard someone else say, or perhaps a question of clarification uh, they might have. Uh, I am going to go ahead and, 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 you know, pull rank here and ask a question right up front for my Southern Baptist fellows. And that is, do you think that there is some type of connection between young earth creationism and premillennialism? In other words, you have this hermeneutic that requires certain things. Is there, you know, we see a resurgence of both at the same time. Do you see any kind? Ted, say no. Go ahead. Well, one of the things, do I need to do something with this? I think, I think speak right into it. I am, I think. There we go. Yeah. Um, one of the things that bothered me as uh, a person becoming a Christian in 73, being an anti-evolutionist but old earth creationist for the reasons we've discussed since that was the majority view, living through the young earth revolution, becoming a young earth creationist, but the thing that bothered me, and, and I mentioned this yesterday, the big deal in the 70s, the tail end was the rapture controversy. Right? So, some of you won't know, but this is pre-left behind for you youngsters. And the, um, the big deal had nothing to do with um, the, the age of the earth. And what bothered me, eventually making me suspect of young earth teaching, was it accused uh, the people that I had studied who were dispensationalists, and we could name them going all the way back to the Plymouth Brethren, who wrote very involved uh, 19th century anti-evolutionist, but full-blown dispensationalist. I mean, the very roots of dispensationalist, true of the fundamentalists, as uh, Ted Davis said, and so on. Arthur Pink, all of those sorts of people. So I don't think they were connected then. Now may be a different story. All right. 
I think in the popular imagination, the two are often connected. It seems to me that the folks who spend an inordinate amount of time creating charts about what might happen in the future also love them some Ken Ham. Um, having said that, I don't know that theologically they're inevitably connected together. Uh, I mean, I, I have loads of friends, and I would put myself in this category, uh, who are premillennialists but old earth creationists. So I don't know that they, I don't know that they have to be connected. But I'm certainly at the popular level, I think we see those two things kind of going into the conservative Christian matrix, standing for the Christian worldview. Sort certainly, of thing. with the Schofield Bible, that comes yeah. to mind. Let me, Ted, let me add to this too. Um, this right into it. It's directional. Just Put your mouth right up to it. Uh, historically, there's a question currently in the historical literature among historians of American religion, and I'm not one of those people. I have to read some of them to do what I do. There's, there's controversy about what is a fundamentalist really, right? And, and uh, there's two classical definitions. One of them is from an historian named Ernie Sandine, and his definition was, it basically was, premillennial dispensationalism was the definition, was the core belief of fundamentalists. George Marsden, another leading historian of fundamentalism, who comes from a reformed background, um, has argued that it's more the militant anti-modernism, such as I showed you in some of those slides. For my project on the history of these views about evolution and science and religion among the modernists, that's really what I've been focusing on in my research is more among the modernists. I've written about fundamentalists previously. But the, the militant anti-modernism is the working definition I've found more helpful be, for, for, for my own work. But I do think it's the case that, that historically there's been, often been a close link between premillennial dispensationalism or premillennialism in another form and anti-evolutionism. However, a big however, quite a few of the contemporary opponents of evolution on the Christian right are reformed in their perspective, and they're probably amillennialist, and, and, that, and that's also the case in the 20s. I think William Jennings Bryan may have been an amillennialist. Amillennialist, yeah, yeah. Now, and of course, he was strongly anti-evolution, but he did not personally identify as a fundamentalist himself. In fact, he was one of the leading proponents of the social gospel of his day. And if, as, as, as my friend here said, at least in SBC circles, the social gospel was kind of anathema among SBC people in the 20s. But Brian was a huge proponent of the social gospel. He never gave that up. Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the odd intersection uh, that, that William Jennings Bryan represents of somebody who was very progressive in his politics and was not a young earth creationist uh, was it, what is it, his concerns about social, uh, the social Darwinism? That was the leading thing that was, was driving him. I, he was driven by many things. I think my, my, the way I was trying to present him is that, as I see it, it's his opposition to types of social Darwinism that ultimately motivate him to do something about it politically. But he, he's never really been an evolutionist throughout his life, as far as I can tell. You know, those earlier comments were from the early 20th century when he's identifying evolution as the law of hate and such. That's social Darwinian, but he's never believed it's true. He always thinks evolution is false, and so it shouldn't be taught in schools because it's false and it's anti-religious and it's undemocratic, small d. So it has all of those problems with it. So we gotta stop it with public funds. Let people do whatever they want in private schools, but public funds must, mustn't teach it. So 
none of us on this uh, platform are young earth creationists, and yet uh, if there was something we'd say that may not be well balanced to be representative of a Southern Baptist, our meeting sponsored by Southern Baptist, that may be uh, something that we, we need to note. And so there's been a, a quite a few questions that have been asked uh, about that, uh, that, you know, there, they, some of the questions are, um, Ken Ham has been alluded to as a problem almost throughout. Um, it, you know, it, instead of being ad hominem, are there arguments against his points? I think the, the point of the, the question that, that's being done here is that perhaps uh, Ken has not received much of a fair shake. Um, do you, does anybody want to take that? Or are you just, okay, Ted? Well, I address it in my book. Um, the issue for which... Let me, let me just make a statement first. Uh, I, I have no problem with a person being a young earth creationist. I think some of my old earth creationist friends will disagree with me and feel like that just shouldn't be acceptable anymore. <clears throat> my issue has to do with the divisiveness of um, that I've, I feel that I've documented extremely well. I'm not the only one, but I feel that I've documented quite well in my book and if, in fact, the things that Ken says, and my, I have friends at Answers in Genesis. I mean, I live in Kentucky, right? And um, Terry Mortensen, I've documented well. If even a third of the things they claim are true, such as the end of the world will happen, and it, I mean, it is just horrible, the things they claim are all associated with old earth creationism, uh, then, in fact, all of us should repent in sackcloth and ashes. However, if it's not true, then they are dividing people unnecessarily, and that's what I call attention to. And one more thing I'll say. So the issue for me is not that Ken Ham is a young earth creationist. It's that he is going straight to the pastors, leaders of denominations, and the person in the pew saying, you really ought to make this your battle cry, as we saw in a variety of cartoons. And uh, I'll say one last thing. I'm very grateful that even though the Young Earth Revolution has made more Americans Young Earth creationists than there are who hold an orthodox view of Jesus, according to the polling data, the majority of these Young Earth creationists do not hold the view that we should be divided over it. And so in that sense, uh, uh, Ken Ham's main point about it has failed, and I'm grateful for that. Well, I'm where Ted is to some extent. Um, I, I never was a young earth creationist. I never even knew about the view until I was in graduate school. When I was introduced to it, I mean, I'm a little older than the other people here. I'm older than I look. I'll put it this way. I'm old enough to be getting, social, to be getting not only Social Security, which I'm not getting, but Medicare. So I'm that old, okay? And, and it didn't exist in, in mainline Protestant churches at all in, 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 in the 60s and 70s. My father was a mainline Presbyterian minister on the evangelical wing of it. He'd have been profoundly unhappy with changes in the denomination recently. He would have been profoundly unhappy. But he, you know, and he never preached about science. He'd studied history in college. And he knew some science, but he didn't preach about it. He just never touched it. A fellow graduate student in physics introduced me to young earth creationism. His name is Stephen Boyd. If you've seen the film, is Genesis History? He is the Bible speaker in that film, Steve Boyd. Hmm. 
So he was a good friend of mine in college. He gave me creationist literature one weekend. I took it home. About 24 hours, I was fascinated with it. Next 24 hours, I figured out it can't be right. I gave it back to him. That was my initial encounter with young earth creationism. I don't have a problem with any person in this room or anywhere else who finds that the most persuasive thing to think about origins. If that's what you think, and you have reasons for it that you've thought about, that's what you need to think. I don't have any problem with Ken Ham believing that. My problem, as Ted says, is with the tone of the conversation. Just to get, I'll pick the example that, I, that bothers me the most. I've been told by creationist organizations that if I don't believe in a young earth view, I don't believe in the gospel, and I don't believe I make Jesus a liar. And that it's connected with the view of death before the fall and the reasons for the gospel, etc. Right? Some of you know, I'm know what I'm talking about here. Okay, do I have to believe from the Bible that all creatures in nature suffer in the animal kingdom because of the sin of Adam and Eve? Well, you can make a case for that from Genesis. You can. It's the standard Protestant view in the Reformation. Calvin taught it. Luther taught it. Wesley taught it. That's pretty good pedigree. A lot of the earlier Catholic thinkers had not. Aquinas and Augustine expressly deny it. Um, but you can find it all the way back to Theophilus of Antioch in the second century. So it's got a long pedigree. But a biblical case, you can make that, but you can also make, I think, a powerful biblical case that theodicy might be different. Here's why. There's an entire book in the Bible about suffering, and we all know what it is. It's the book of Job. And the whole question is, why do we suffer? And nowhere in the book are Adam and Eve named. Nowhere. That's a loud silence. And then when Jesus heals the blind man, they come to him and ask him, who was it that sinned, he or his parents? That's the perfect place to say, no, it wasn't him or his parents, but it was his parents' parents' parents, right? What's Jesus' answer? It's totally outside the box, right? That God may be glorified, etc. So I'm just saying there are New Testament and Old Testament texts that there where the topic specifically is the origin of suffering and evil. And the answer is either no answer from Job or a different answer from Jesus. So I'm, I'm just using it not to persuade anyone that that's the right way to think, but simply to say, hold the, hold the horses here. If we're going to start saying you need to buy this theodicy and this understanding of Genesis if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian. I don't think that's the case. So, um, Dr. Harrison, you're, you're the fellow who flew literally halfway around the world to be here. Um, your observations of this peculiar phenomenon known as Southern Baptist and, and our discussions about evolution, creation, faith, um, what's, your, what's your thoughts? Uh, Ken, I think it would take a lot longer than my spending two days here casually observing to get even the faintest insight into what's going on. <laughs> but <laughs> let, me, um, let me make this observation and I, I, will, come, I, will, come back, I will come back to this uh, because I do think there are tensions between uh, 
classic evolutionary thinking and traditional Christian belief. I think there are genuine tensions there. And I think that's a phenomenon that's, that's manifested in, in a number of different ways, including young earth creationism. But you've said that we're all historians and we don't have any biologists. And so the, part of the, the question here is what do, what do historians have to add to this conversation that might be useful? And I think we've seen a few precedents. And if we go back to the, the very first talk um, that, that Michael gave yesterday, we see Thomas Aquinas attempting to appropriate the, the science of the time, as it were, Aristotelianism, and he builds that into a foundation of Christian theology, but he doesn't accept it all. He rejects explicitly uh, the, the doctrine of the eternity of the world, uh, and he rejects explicitly some of the implications of Aristotelian thinking for uh, the human soul and immortality. So he, he's not an uncritical acceptor of the of the prevailing uh, of the, the prevailing mode and and so it's worth thinking that as Christians we need I think not to be uncritical about prevailing uh, uh, ways of thinking um, and 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 I, that brings me to Ted one's talk also where he spoke about um, the Catholic response to Galileo, which I think is a very sophisticated one, and I mentioned it last night, and I'll mention it again today, and that is that God can produce results in ways that we have no conception of. And science provides us with conceptions and models and ways of thinking about the operations of nature that map onto it, that give us predictability, and that are deeply persuasive. But there's always the possibility that we haven't actually got it 100% right. Uh, and the history of science tells us this, because in the philosophy of science, there are people who are pessimistic meta-induction meta at school, but we see scientific theories change over time. And they're all good scientific theories. They're scientific theories that map onto reality, that give us predictability, that enable us to do things but whether they tell us 100% of the truth is, is, the, is the question here. So there's an issue about modesty. Um, and let me say one other thing. We often hear this notion about the book of nature and the book of scripture. And they have the one author and they can't both be in conflict. But as I forget who mentioned, but someone in this panel mentioned, we are interpreters of the book of nature and we are interpreters of the book of scripture and we're not inerrant on either side, both our interpretation of scripture and our interpretation of nature. And there's always then the possibility for, for tensions. So I go back to the, the thing I said to, to last night, don't take science too seriously. I don't want to be misunderstood here. I think science needs to be taken very seriously. But it's the not too seriously is, is the question here. And on both sides, I think, what history shows is that we're fallible in both our interpretations of the natural world and our interpretations of Scripture. And when tensions arise between the two, it's not necessarily that we haven't, uh, it's not necessarily that one is wrong and the other is right, but it's really to do with the fact that we're just finite creatures struggling to, to get to the truth. Dr. Murray, I've, you and I have been at a number of conferences like this in which there is a conversation between uh, faith and science, those who are practitioners in the academy, either in the biblical studies uh, or in the scientific realm. Uh, 
what, what would you have to say to us about a conference like the, or a historical precedent, what it might show us, especially since you you've de- have dealt uh, a lot with uh, theodicy, the problem of predation, animal death. And I would just have to say, we were de- I, one of the questions were asked, why are so many Southern Baptists and Young Earth creationists uh, so convinced that young earth creationism must be right, uh, I think not the age of the earth. And I think it's, they, they, they are very much bothered by the idea of not just predation, but disease and the horrors of, of that have happened in the natural world predating some type of uh, Adamic fall. Would any of that which you would, rela- uh, would want to respond to or maybe sure. go in a different direction? Sure. Well, that's a lot. Uh, first of all, I'll just let me say I uh, really appreciate the comments, uh, the talks, and the comments of the other panelists here, which all of which I agree with. Um, one thing that I think you can see through the talks, and I was hinting at this myself in the discussion of the uh, episode in Paris with St. Thomas and his engagement with Aristotle, is it's easy for us to look at a particular philosophical, theological, or scientific position and then add other claims to that position that don't necessarily follow from the core commitments of it. So, um, you know, Aristotelianism was taken to have certain consequences that were inescapable from first principles, and you have uh, Christian thinkers like St. Thomas come along and say, there's another way of looking at this. These heterodox implications don't necessarily follow from these fundamental principles. We um, We can look at it a different way. And what we heard from uh, Ted this morning was something similar happens with evolution in the late 19th and early 20th century where various thinkers add certain philosophical assumptions or draw certain philosophical conclusions from a scientific theory that's not intrinsic to that theory. And you know, oftentimes those who portray themselves as theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists or whatever label you use, um, they also claim that certain things are intrinsically connected to this scientific theory that, that aren't, in fact. And I think one of the things that has been uh, becoming clear, even very recently, is that many of these additional claims don't follow from the core fundamental uh, scientific theory. So what evolution is primarily about is the expl- an explanation of the complexity and diversity of life over time through various mechanisms. And there isn't just a single algorithm uh, that explains the complexity and diversity of life on the scientific theory, and we shouldn't expect there to be. Life is, there's a lot of it, and it's really complicated. And so to expect that there's just one kind of scientific algorithm that explains how we get the complexity and diversity of life is is unrealistic. Um, We at one time thought there was a single algorithm, that is, genetic variation and natural selection, that explains it all. We know that that's not now the case, that we need to invoke other mechanisms. Some critics of evolution say that that shows that evolution is a theory in crisis. That's not, that's not correct. What it shows is that evolution is a theory that tr- attempts to explain a lot of things, and the explanation is going to be complicated and messy. And in fact, that turns out to be true. It's true in other big-scale scientific theories, uh, in particle physics or in qu- quantum theory and relativity. These are theories that in, intend to explain a lot of things, They're big and complicated and messy sometimes, and that's true in evolution as well. So I think one thing we just need to be careful about is when someone says evolution presumes or entails uh, deism, it presumes or entails uh, naturalism, it presumes or it entails that there's no historical atom, I mean, the first thing you need to do is just pause and say, wait a minute, why is that so? I mean, tell me, make the case for me. Don't simply assume that whoever's 
telling you this has got the story right. You really need to unpack it for yourself. And I think sometimes when you do that, you find out it's not uh, as it is uh, sometimes claimed to be. Um, you know, with respect to the question of theodicy, it's a really uh, multifaceted and complicated uh, question. And what many of my Christian colleagues uh, have said to me when they've looked at the book that I've written on this topic is that in some respects they don't buy the book because they don't think that there's a problem to solve. Not that they don't think there's a problem of natural evil, but they just don't think evolution makes it any more difficult or worse. Um, animal suffering exists whether uh, you think the earth is young or old. Uh, predation exists whether you think the world is young or old. Extinctions exist whether you think the world is young or old. So what's the difference, you know? And one difference, of course, is that you uh, would endorse on the old earth view or on the theistic evolution view that we can't explain the existence of natural evil entirely in terms of or downstream of the fall by some original human pair. That's something you just can't have on the evolutionary view. And so the question is, is that compatible with um, orthodox Christian theology? And uh, what are the alternative explanations if that's not the explanation? And I said yesterday, you know, I think that the fall explanation all on its own without a lot of additional work really isn't a very good explanation, even if you are a young earth creationist. So I think it's an area that just requires a lot of um, additional reflection. I think there are a number of Christian scholars who have been thinking about this topic and have been proposing a variety of different alternatives. So which one's the right one? I have no idea. But you don't either. I think what we all need to do is to do the best that we can using our, uh, the best tools at our disposal to continue to interrogate these alternatives and figure out what are the viable options. So the, one of the things that I've picked up from hearing the various speakers is that there was a real concern. I mean, we've heard both the talks this morning. There were a real concern of, of the, the downgrade, the, the descent. Uh, and I think that that would be uh, on the hearts and minds of a lot of people. From the historical examples we have, one, it, does, it doesn't appear to me that they were, they were shadow boxing. It looks like they, they, there were real concerns for real reasons. Um, we've, Ernst Haeckel has been mentioned. Thomas Huxley has been mentioned. Uh, others come to mind. They were not neutral in their, in their promotion of, of Darwinian theory. They, they used it in, in a broader, is it not true that they used it to make some very broad metaphysical claims about the nature of reality? Um, if that's so, you know, how then, and one of the questions that we have here is then, all right, as a Christian, how then do I engage with, this, with the thinking of modern science and still hold to my integrity, such as the importance of a historical atom, uh, the, the importance of an actual fall? Um, who, would like to, who would like to jump in on that question? Well, let me jump in on a variant of the question. Maybe this is directly addressing the question, but I think one thing that uh, we, you can infer from listening to the various talks that you've heard is... Um, Here's the way things don't work. Um, it's not the case that when we're doing science, we can start off making a bunch of observations. We use those observations to test um, philosophically neutral hypotheses, and then we live with the consequences and see what we infer from those. It's a much more dynamic intellectual environment where in philosophical presuppositions that we have lead us to 
think that certain um, scientific hypotheses are more likely to be true than others. And then we go out into the field and interrogate those hypotheses, again, which might have commended themselves to us because we had certain initial philosophical or theological presuppositions. And I think one thing that's really been un unfortunate is that with Christians not, generally speaking, on the front lines when it comes to investigating these uh, key uh, scientific questions, those hypotheses that might be made more plausible on a Christian perspective don't necessarily get interrogated. So one place where you might think that that's, well, I don't know, you could look at it either way. I mean, some people think that that's what we're seeing with intelligent design, right? That the scientific community is kind of resisting any attempt to look at the world through an ID lens. There's some truth to that. But I think even uh, if you set that aside and just think about evolutionary theory more generally, let me give you um, one and a half examples of this. So one is, if you buy into the evolutionary picture, broadly speaking, and you're a Christian who thinks that God created the world with the aim of, among other things, uh, bringing into existence creatures that manifest the divine image, okay, let's say you think those two things, then you also have to think that God providentially set things up in such a way that the trajectory is going to lead to that outcome, that these organisms that manifest the divine image are going to emerge. So you might wonder, well, how could, how could that be? You know, how could that be, especially in light of all the talk that we hear about evolution being a random and unguided process, which, by the way, those words are, have a very technical meaning in evolution, and they're not inconsistent with the idea that God is providentially superintending those natural processes, but that's another, that's another matter. But you might ask yourself, okay, well, how, how, how could this be? Are there... Uh, elements of the natural world that are, as I said yesterday, kind of guiding the evolutionary path down particular roads that lead to the emergence of those beings like us that manifest the divine image. And it's what's led a very few small number of uh, biologists who are Christians to go out looking for these guardrails. And in fact, I think, uh, I don't even think this is arguable. We found some of them. And we found some of them only because we brought our Christian commitments to the table, Christian commitments which made certain hypotheses look more likely to be true, and in fact, we've made important scientific discoveries on the basis of it. So the enterprise of science is suffering by having Christians not bringing their convictions into the, into the arena and showing us the way certain hypotheses probably should commend themselves to us um, that were otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be examined. Um, I was going to give you a second one, but I've talked too long. Dr. Harrison, what would be some of perhaps the church fathers are leading theologians, do you think it would have something to say to Christians about how to think about the natural? I'm thinking a little bit maybe about Augustine and his approach. We've heard a lot about Aquinas, our, uh, uh, Calvin's understanding in Genesis. Uh, who, who would you point to and how, 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 who would you recommend? You have a whole room full of people who are going to read the church fathers. Who would you recommend that they, where would they go and where would they look? Well, you can't go past Augustine, can you? Uh, <laughs> no, it's interesting. Augustine does have a kind of quasi-evolutionary conception of how, how nature operates. Because Augustine grapples, he, Augustine writes four, essentially four things where he looks at the exegesis of Genesis. Uh, he, he talks about it in the last three books of the Confessions, and he has two... And, uh, incomplete works, and then he has the famous um, uh, ad literam on the literal interpretation of Genesis, uh, which is not really literal. But, but the, the fascinating view that Augustine puts it there is that he's, Augustine's confronted with two conflicting biblical, uh, biblical um, uh, witnesses. One in the Psalms that suggests that God created everything at once, 
and the, the, then the sequential story that he encounters in Genesis. So he has to figure out how that's possible. So what Augustine says is that God created things uh, with the potential to develop over time. He put in things seminal principles or seminal reasons, the seeds of things that would develop in the future. So what you've actually got in Augustine is a conception of creation as something that actually develops over time. Now what's interesting is that Augustine picks up on the problem that Michael has just alluded to. Evolution uh, by natural selection is quite different from that because it looks like it can go anywhere. So Stephen Jay Gould famously described this notion of rerunning the tape of life. And, and he says if you rerun the evolutionary tape of life, you'll get a different set of outcomes every time. But for a Christian providential view of history, you've got to have something like human beings, as Michael said, capable of the image of God. And that's the kind of view you've got with Augustine. And initially it looked as if that kind of view was quite incompatible with uh, what one of uh, Darwin's critics called the law of higgledy-piggledy, that said everything was just an accident. But again, what's interesting about the history of evolutionary thinking is you wait long enough, or as Michael has said, if you're motivated to look for things, you get the phenomenon of convergent evolution, which shows that actually, although you've got, uh, even with simply the mechanism of natural selection, forget all the others, and there are lots of others, um, even with if simply the uh, natural selection, evolution continually converges on the same solutions to these problems, and arguably uh, something like human beings becomes inevitable. So it turns out, paradoxically, that there's a kind of um, confluence between, say, an Augustinian quasi-evolutionary understanding that's already there um, and uh, uh, what we've discovered in, 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 in uh, contemporary, contemporary evolution. Augustine also has this wonderful thing that, that maps neatly onto uh, Big Bang Theory, which is the notion that God actually created time uh, so that... Um, now. Things might change in the future, so I'm not wanting to suggest that Augustine's the guy, to, the go-to guy for all of our science, but it's just interesting that we do see uh, those um, um, quite rich conceptions uh, way back in the, the fifth century. Very good. Yes, Ted. I would like to just say, you mentioned the word downgrade. I'm um, not addressing this in relation to either evolution or um, cultural historical things, neither of which am I qualified. Um, but I have been a Southern Baptist professor for a long time, and particularly in a seminary setting, in a confessional setting, I think there's one thing that younger students in particular um, may not be aware. It was alluded to uh, in Nathan's talk about um, the resurgence, the conservative resurgence, but it applies there was something that people at least thought needed to be resurged against or whatever the word. And as a student during those days and then a colleague with some of my professors whom I loved and respected um, when, once I was on the same faculty, I saw up in close and personal these sorts of things. So let me just say a couple of points here in definition first. I hold to and think it's critically important to define terms so that we're not talking past one another. And I'm just going to use for this definition for liberal Christian or liberal 
theologian, someone who denies a number of the central doctrines of Christianity, what um, Ted called small o, o orthodoxy, or to put it differently, you could be an evolutionist and not be a liberal according to, say, J. Gresham Machen's definition of um, what it means to be orthodox. So I'm aware of it, and I'm not trying to equate, um, let's say, evolution automatically makes you a liberal. They're two different animals, right? What I saw as a student in the SBC, which I think does, however, sort of float over, a shadow over this discussion and makes it hard for lay people to think through, is the very fact that there have been legitimate liberal theologians teaching in our institutions. And what <clears throat> you use the word gateway drug. So for instance, as a student and then later a professor at Southwestern Seminary, I could say this now because it's a very different time, but um, <clears throat> the gateway drug for MDiv students was to talk about, say, open theism, because it was a position held by evangelicals. At the time, it was a big controversy, even among ETS, Evangelical Theological Society, which is predicated upon we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. So that was what an MDiv student was exposed to. God may not know the future about things that contingent beings are about, and so on. At the doctoral level, however, um, and I had a sweet mate, one of my colleagues, when I was hired, he thought because I was a philosopher that I would love the idea, which was a real sort of an unusual. He just assumed that I would be thrilled when he sort of revealed to me in private that his own metaphysics uh, is Hegelian, that he's a, he was like, he loved the German idealists a couple centuries ago, and he uh, denied belief in the, in the Trinity. Um, other theologians in private or at the doctoral level, I watched friends who went through the doctoral program, and Southwestern was considered the conservative school in those days. Your institution here was considered the seedbed of liberalism, as well as the school where I am, and the school where I am now. And by the way, look, I, I want to make clear, the whole conservative resurgence was full of blood, almost, that is ugly, embarrassing. We're not, I'm not saying that those sorts of corrections were always done in a godly, wonderful way. That is not all my point. But it isn't right either today. It's confusing to young students to hear the word conservatives and moderates. So even though many of my colleagues at Southwestern Seminary were indeed moderates, they just didn't care one way or the other, but they themselves were were largely conservative. We had theologians who denied the virgin birth. We had one who didn't even believe in absolute truth. He, he was a committed um, deconstructionist, and Jacques Derrida was his model. Um, and I could go on and on and on. These were the sorts of things that I saw young students, and I felt it was my job committed to the confession among Southern Baptists, which isn't as narrow as some would like it and isn't as broad as others would like it, but it is the confession to which I publicly and privately uphold 
to sort of rescue some students who were coming to me in private saying, I've lost my faith. I moved, one student moved from Kentucky to go to Texas, to Southwestern, because he had been told by his pastor, you don't want to go to school in Kentucky because it's too liberal. You'll lose your faith. He came to, within a year, a newlywed, uh, his wife was our secretary, and she said, would you talk to my husband? She's crying. He's, he's about to lose his faith. And I said, why? And she said, because of his... So she brought him to me, and then he cried with me. He said, I don't, I don't know if I want to be a pastor or whatever. Uh, and it wasn't evolution. He was, being he was being taught the Bible is full of stuff that historical, theological uh, error. Uh, it's not just scientific error. It's, it's moral error in the Bible. And so I could go on and on, but we are confessionally, those of us who teach in seminaries, I'm not ashamed of this, I, I'm, this is who I am, that we are people of the book. And whatever we are, uh, we, with plenty of things easy to pick on, we really have seen some real problems in the teaching of our pastors and, and missionaries that we don't want to do again. I think that is a legitimate concern. We don't always know how to fix these problems, and we, we don't always identify them correctly, but I think that that is a legitimate background in the very recent past of the SBC that needs to be considered. The problems, problems were very real. We are Southern Baptists, the two on the end and, and me, and as such, we have signed the Baptist faith and message. And one of the questions that, uh, that has been asked is about uh, the Baptist faith and message statement on the doctrine of creation. Uh, what are the boundaries? What, 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 what's allowed and what's, what, give us the parameters of, excuse me, um, the question is about theistic evolution, and, and I'll be glad to jump in on that if you tag team on that, if you get a little concerned. Yeah. So I think that the, the tricky thing about a confession of faith is there's always what do the words say, and then what's the story behind the words, right? So though I am not an evolutionary creationist, I think, based upon my friends who are evolutionary creationists and what the words say, you could be an evolutionary creationist and sign the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 with a clear conscience. I think you could be a young earth creationist, an old earth creationist of various types, or an evolutionary creationist. Having said that, I do think it would be fair to say that the people who drafted the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 are not keen on theistic evolution. So I think that's where it gets tricky is what... What did, what did the drafters have in mind when they wrote the document versus what the words say? So I'm just telling you, I don't think there's anything in the Baptist faith and message that by definition precludes evolutionary creationism. But I think that if we could have a witch of Endor sort of ceremony and you know bring back everybody for just a minute, who was there, they would probably freak out at the idea that they're evolutionary creation. And so that's something that we have to kind of work through, uh, is, is what that means. But if it's about what the words say, I think it's incompatible with Darwinism as a worldview, as Darwinism is defined, uh, in kind of the way that we talk about it in everyday language. It's absolutely incompatible with that. I'm not convinced it's incompatible, though, with evolutionary creationism as 
folks in that camp right now are articulating that view? I would agree to a certain extent and then push back on a few points in that I think that it does talk about Adam being the special creation of God. And so that, and and I'm in print saying, yes, just like what you said, yes, I can see some versions that are acceptable as long as you can affirm what the Baptist faith and message says about a special creation of God. And this goes back, maybe I can ask the men in the middle. Um, there, from our perspective, a conservative evangelical perspective, it isn't just creation, redemption, consummation. Or, you know, it's, it's creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I think if you've picked up anything on this conference that it's not so much the mechanism of creation that we find problematic. I mean, Augustine's understanding of the, you know, that, that creation is initially in seed form and then it just flowers out, uh, I don't think that, that we would find that theologically challenging. The idea of, of uh, uh, we go back to, to the problem of uh, the human being the way that they are, humans being the way that they are, fallen, sinners, uh, alienated from God, orientated towards evil is the, is the way that, that it's presented to us very clearly from Genesis to, Re, uh, to Revelation. Um, I think James K.A. Smith, uh, Jamie Smith says it so very well in his book, Evolution and, and the Fall, where he talks about uh, the fall doesn't just, the, the Genesis 3 doesn't just tell us the human condition. It also makes a claim about how the human condition got to be the way it is and why we are in this environment that we are. Um, you three men uh, here in, in, the, in, in the middle, you swim in those waters better than I do. What is the thinking among theistic evolutionists about Adam? Uh, are there those who understand the seriousness that we as conservative evangelicals feel about this? And are they sensitive to that? I think they are, although you know, one challenge is uh, we've had a number of discussions about making sure we define our terms clearly. Right? And so one question is, what does theistic evolution or evolutionary creation mean? And the answer is, it means different things in the mouths or in the pens or in the keyboards of different people. And so if you say, it means whatever Deb Harzma, Francis Collins, Carl Guyberson, uh, Pedens, or whoever, right, say that it is. Well, first of all, you're just going to have an inconsistent mishmash because even those people think different things about it. And so one thing that would be valuable to do, and this is something that a colleague and I tried to do at the most recent ETS meeting, is just des- describe what we were calling mere theistic evolution. Like, what are the fundamental, what are the basic commitments uh, of all of these different views? And then what are the extras that you can throw in? And uh, I think once you understand the basic views, the basic view, you realize that there are many things that are compatible with it that some more conservative uh, Christians are concerned about. So, for example, the special creation of Adam and Eve, is that consistent with what uh, I'm calling mere theistic evolution? The answer is yes. There's nothing about the evolutionary story that precludes God directly creating uh, a, a, a human pair from whom we are all descended, or creating a whole species for that matter. That's not inconsistent with an evolutionary story. It's inconsistent with evolutionary naturalism, right? But it's not inconsistent with an evolutionary story that uh, is embraced by a Christian any more than Jesus calming the, the wind and the waves is incompatible with meteorology, 
Right? Meteorology is a science that, in general and on average, explains the kind of phenomena that we find in the weather, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's complete or that God can't have some kind of uh, direct role in bringing about meteorological events. Same thing's true with respect to uh, evolutionary creation or, or theistic evolution. So I think, yeah, uh, de novo creation of Adam and Eve, that's consistent. Um, the uh, cr creation of uh, an original human pair, maybe even very recently, but certainly in a much more distant time in the Are past. Are you thinking of Swamidas's? Yeah, Josh's work on genealogical uh, uh, ancestry, I think, uh, demonstrates that at least very recently, uh, how recently is under dispute, but um, at least very recently, they're, they're uh, uh, likely was, or at least could be, a pair from whom we're, only de we're all descended. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other contemporary Homo sapiens that would be outside the garden. This is one of the kind of theological challenges that everybody's thinking about and wrestling with. Um, but the point is, I think many of the key doctrines that were, raise such concern when it comes to uh, evolutionary thinking uh, are, aren't central to the, sci the core scientific view. And if we can get past that, then we can start to think about, um, first of all, the explanatory power of the view, but also what the theological requirements and options are. Excellent. Yeah, so look, I think the question was, do, do theistic evolutionists see the problem? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, I was part of the project that the Jamie Smith book came out of, um, partly because I was interested in this, this issue and uh, it was clear among the team of people, including um, Daryl, who's coming next, who was terrific on the biological side, there wasn't a convergence of views about this. So this, this I think is one of the hard, I'd say this is one of the hard problems. I think it's particularly hard for, for people like you. Um, my, my personal view would be, again, looking historically at the tradition, um, the, August, the Augustinian fall, uh, creation, fall, redemption triad is, is really something that the church endorses post-Augustine and that prior to that there are other options on the table. The Greek Orthodox tradition has never ever bought that story. So one solution is to, is to stop being Southern Baptists and become Greek Orthodox. <laughs> right? I'm not, personally, I'm not Greek with it. So, so I, I guess I'm saying that it's not so much that there's a bind that you've got yourselves into here, um, although that, that, that's one possible construction, but all of the examples that Michael has been is giving you are, are suggesting that these hard problems um, are hard at particular moments in history when the coincidence of particular set of, stop waving this microphone, a particular set of theological commitments which can range from Greek Orthodoxy to Southern Baptist to something else have to coincide with a particular set of scientific commitments and we're right at that crunch point at the moment I think with, with this, the historical Adam question uh, and, and you know there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that there's a, it, there's a real genuine tension between uh, the, the notion of historical Adam historical fall and the consequences of that, how our understanding of redemption maps back onto that, it, that seems to me to be a genuine problem that has to be thought through if you're strongly committed to that Augustinian pattern and a particular version of, of the necessity for historical Adam, Adam and Eve. 
We are a missional school. Uh, we believe in understanding the culture in which we live and being able to engage with it, with the gospel in a way that is, is, uh, has the boldness of uh, the New Testament promises of the gospel. So we, we do not believe that we do uh, the mission of God any favors if we approach scientific questions with a spirit of fear and of, of, of withdrawal, but we believe that God has not given us a spirit of fear. That because uh, the God who created the heavens and the earth is the God who has revealed himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to face these kinds of questions with confidence in the resurrected Lord. So even though we've covered tough things, and even though there are some places where we have addressed where they're not yet resolved, I think uh, the historians here would agree with me, there's nothing new about that in the 2,000-year history of the church. Uh, the Ptolemaic system that Galileo, the Catholic Church, you know, were so keen to defend in the 5th and 6th century, it was the other way around. You know, it was pagan. We can't believe this. That's why, you know, Cosmos says, no, we've got to believe the earth is flat. Jesus said they would be called from the four corners of the earth. You're not going to call Jesus a liar, are you? And so you had where, the, you know, whether or not the earth is round or flat was presented as a gospel issue. And the church said, no, it's not. Uh, they were able to work this out. Uh, I have similar confidence in the great discussions that we have today that in the year, in, if our Lord tarries, that they'll look back at us and say, well, they got some things right. I appreciate their, their fidelity to the gospel. Boy, they sure missed other things. Didn't they see this? And, and it is in that confidence that the gospel is true uh, and uh, that we, are, we uh, here at the Bush Center uh, do bring in different voices. We have young earth creationists who come to speak. We've not only had Todd Wood next week, we've had people from Answers in Genesis come and present here. Uh, we have old earth creationists. We've had uh, people from Reasons to Believe and from Discovery Institute. We've had people from Biologos. Uh, we, have, uh, we bring a, a variety of voices here because we believe that we have that responsibility to you as students that you hear uh, the conversation as it's going on. Uh, because that's part of equipping you as ministers of the gospel. And so I am glad that each of these men have come and they have, they have blessed us by sharing with us from their expertise and their knowledge. And I, I am deeply grateful to each and every one of you. Would you join me in showing our appreciation to them?